We are quickly drawing to a close of our study in Genesis. We'll be done in the next few weeks of that. Uh, so we'll be covering, co- covering a couple of chapters each week um, until we're done with that. And then we are going to jump into a series uh, in, the, in the month of July um, on the church, so a four-week series. And then after that, we will be in the, the, book of, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians um, for the remainder of the year and into the new year even. Um, so just getting yourself prepared for that. That's what's coming up uh, in the preaching schedule. But this morning, we are in Genesis 42 and 43. So I'm just going to read uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9 for us, because I think that gives us a good context of where we're at. So Genesis 42, verses 1 through 9. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like, the, like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our our minds and our hearts to understand what is going on in this part of your word this morning, but that you would give us hearts um, that are awakened to the reality of the gospel that we see here this morning in these two chapters. So do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the problem that we all face in our contemporary culture, whether we want to face it or not, is our own sin. Some of you might be a bit more aware of your own sin. You might be a a lot more sensitive to your own sin, while others of you are, are trying to suppress your sin, either by ignoring it or denying it or justifying it. You know, it's not that bad. And I found it interesting the past several weeks of the backlash that major corporations like Anheuser-Busch and Target have experienced over the alliance that they have forged with the LGBTQ community. So Anheuser-Busch alone has seen its market value plunge by $15.7 billion since the campaign with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. So what does that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we do have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. That what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 that Caitlin read for us is true. And I just want to remind you of verses 18 through 20. Paul says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So this might sound crazy. But this is what would motivate someone like Kid Rock to take to social media to annihilate several cases of Bud Light with an AR-15. And why many said they would boycott a place like Target because of their pride line of clothing. And we are happy to point that out. And I think at some level we should do that. But we are only happy to point that out as long as it's happening outside of us. Because we're afraid to bring that same sort of energy, that same sort of conviction to our own inconsistent hearts. Because we still fall into this trap of saying, well, as long as I'm not committing that sin, then I'm better off. Which is simply not true. Remember what Paul says in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And he goes on to list those things. Gossip, disobedient to parents, lying, all sorts of other sins that I know for a fact we have all committed. We all land in that list somewhere. We like to see ourselves as the Joseph of the story. That's, that's, that's who we like to picture ourselves as. That's, that's, that's who I am. I am Joseph. We don't like to believe that we are actually Joseph's brothers. Because, because what needs to happen to all of us, the, the Dylan Mulvaney's and the Kid Rocks of the world, all of us, is the mirror of God's law must be held up to each of us so that we are able to see, as, as Tim Keller often said, that you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. And that is true for every person in the world. Not just you sitting in the pew on a Sunday. And, and the only way that you understand that, that grand truth is when God supernaturally and sovereignly intervenes in your life. And we see that demonstrated in our chapters today in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Their, their consciences are being awakened to not only the reality of their own sin, but also to the goodness of God toward them. They see their sin, but God in his common grace toward them reveals to them his goodness to, to them. And so this happens in, in two ways this morning, and these are our two points. Two ways throughout chapter 42 and 43. One is through their physical circumstances. 
through their physical circumstances. And the second way is through the spiritual reality of who God is. So their spiritual, their physical circumstances, and then you could say their spiritual circumstance or their spiritual reality. So first through their circumstances. So throughout chapters 42 and 43, the brothers are painfully aware of what they must do in order to physically survive. So after their father awkwardly kind of kicks them in the pants in verse 1 when he says, why are you standing around? Why are you just standing around looking at each other? You know what needs to be done so that we can survive. After all of that happens, they are full throttle for the rest of the time, doing whatever it takes to survive physically. But very quickly, this turns into a much different survival situation than they initially anticipated at the beginning of chapter 42. By the time we reach verse 6, we are faced with this massive shift in the story. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So I hope you recognize what the author Moses is doing there is he is pointing out to us the sovereignty of God. There is, there is no other situation in which Joseph's brothers are going to land in, the, in Egypt apart from a famine in their land. And, and in this particular situation, the author reminds us that Joseph was the governor of Egypt, of the land, and that he was also the one who was selling to the people of the land. So he was having physical interaction with people who were coming to purchase grain for themselves. And he just so happens to come upon his brothers. So I hope you're able to see, and, and I hope you're reminded that, that this is Joseph's dream come true from chapter 37. And I just want to, just, if, just in case you forgot or you're not familiar with the story, this was Joseph's dream back in 37 when he was this kind of 16-year-old uh, kind of punk to his brothers. He had no idea what God was doing in his life, but he was having some weird dreams. And this is the first dream he told his brothers. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us, Joseph? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So this has now become much more than just getting food for the family. Now it becomes a painful test that the brothers have to endure at the hand of Joseph, and they don't even realize it yet. So testing shows the tested what they know, and the more they know, the more likely they are to pass the test. We all know that from test-taking in school. The more we know, the more likely it is that we are going to get a better grade on this particular test. But what we find throughout chapter 42 and chapter 43 is that Joseph makes it impossible for his brothers to pass. They, they essentially know nothing, and there's nothing that they can do in order to make themselves better 
in the, in the, in the view of Joseph. So much so that on more than one occasion, they are brought to the end of themselves. Their, their desperation flows out all over the place. Just look in verse 21. Then they said to one another, after all of this has happened to them, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So what has happened? Well, the conscience of the brothers has been awakened to the reality of their sin. So much so that they look back 20 years to the magnum opus of sin and say, that's why we are suffering. I'm sure there was there were definitely a million more sins in between selling their brother off to slavery up until this moment, and they all collectively agree, this is why we are suffering the way we are suffering, because of what we did to our brother. And they're right. This is exactly why they are suffering, because of the sin they committed against Joseph. And in verse 22, Reuben correctly describes it as a reckoning for his blood. A reckoning for his blood. Now, this is, this is a, an interesting word uh, that is chosen here, reckoning, because it's the same word used by God to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, when he says to Noah, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so Reuben is stating the obvious here. We have killed a man, and therefore we will die as well. But even though this is true, there is no amount of blood spilt that will be able to reconcile what the brothers have done. There is, there is nothing they can do to alleviate the guilt they feel. They can't save themselves. And we know that they feel this weight because uh, after more testing from Joseph, their response in verse 28 is this. At, th at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? So God is stirring their consciences in such a way through their physical circumstances that they are now spiritually sensitive. Now God has entered into the picture for the brothers. What is this that God is doing to us? And I believe this is something God does with all of us as well. He, he stirs your conscience to see if you are spiritually sensitive enough to share in his work in the world. Are you sensitive to the Lord's work in your life? Are you sensitive to those things? What do you do in those times that, that, that God may be provoking you awake? 
And maybe, maybe he's using suffering in your life to do that. Maybe he's, he's using suffering to, to prick at your heart. Maybe he's using your own sin to do that or your own restlessness to do that, to say, this is not where I want you to stay. What do you do in those moments? C.S. Lewis said in, uh, in his book, The Problem of Pain, a familiar quote, some of you have probably heard this before, but he says, we can I- ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. So I, I read Tim Keller's biography this week um, by Colin Hansen. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. But in, in his, in his uh, book, he, he recalls um, the story from um, September 11th uh, in New York City. And, and during that time, some of you probably weren't even born then, um, but during that time, there was a great spiritual awakening that happened in New York City. And it happened amongst many New Yorkers. Uh, at that particular time. Redeemer Prez alone, the, the, the church that Tim Keller pastored, uh, grew not by like tens and twenties, but it grew by thousands during that time. Literally overnight, doubling uh, and almost tripling their attendance um, by spiritual seekers in the city. And one woman told the story of how the, the 9-11 attacks awakened her to the spiritual desert that she found herself in and how God used that tragedy to draw her back to himself. And she says this, I didn't know where I was going if I did die. I became painfully aware that I didn't possess a relationship with God, that I'd only ever lived for myself. It was a terrible acknowledgement that throughout my life, a Savior beckoned to me with open arms, and I'd never cared enough to respond. And maybe you're in a similar situation. I know it's not a 9-11 type of situation, but maybe you are in a particular situation where you are like Joseph's brothers, or you are like this woman here, and your heart has failed you. You're recognizing maybe, maybe, that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe that you were. And that there is no amount of deeds or sacrifices that you can make that will dig you out of the pit of despair that you find yourself in. But you can't stop there. You can't stop there and just kind of wallow in self-pity or, or, or feeling, just feeling sorry for yourself because you're thinking, oh, woe is me. How will I ever get out of this? Because the conscience is not fully awakened until the spiritual reality is recognized and engaged, which is what Joseph's brothers begin to recognize in our second point. Their foundation has been thoroughly shaken. 
They confess to what they believe they have done. They believe that they have murdered their brother. They are, they are sure of it. Their brother has died at their hands. They listened to their brother scream out in agony over what they were doing to them, and they did nothing. And so now they think, we are going to die because of this. And then in chapter 43, as they head back to Egypt, to what they probably believe to be their death march, they are walking towards their death. All of them are going to be wiped out. That's what they believe. They instead have their consciences awakened to the spiritual reality that not only is happening in their present moment, but that has been happening the entirety of their lives. Remember, they are part of the line of promise. The the promise from Genesis 3.15 that God is bringing the Messiah. God is bringing the snake crusher. So he has been at work in their family's life the entirety of the brothers' lives, even in their guilt, even in their suffering, God has been with them. And this is simply the goodness of God toward them. His common grace towards them. His open arms toward them. And so these brothers get three glimpses of this in chapter 43. The first glimpse comes from a passing statement from their father in verse 14. So they're about to go back. They they convince their father that they can take uh, that he that he can send Benjamin with them. He'll be safe. We'll take care of him. Nothing's going to happen, even though they could not promise that. They still tried to do it because they knew this was their only hope. And so finally, Jacob uh, says, "Yes, take him, Uh, take him." But he also follows it up with these words, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your your other brother and Benjamin. So why God's mercy? Why would Jacob say such a thing? Well, if mercy is not getting what you do deserve, it's exactly what the brothers needed. And I think all along that Jacob kind of, kind of low-key knows that his sons have done something or did something to Joseph. I think he, uh, kind of the underlying kind of belief that he's had is like, man, I know these guys, these guys are scoundrels. I know they hated their brother. They had something to do with it, but he never outright blames them. But, but he says these words to them, have mercy because they need mercy at Joseph's hand. Because there is nothing that they could do or nothing that could be done to make Joseph relent. I mean, the brothers see Joseph not as their brother. They don't know that this is their brother yet. They see this man as a loose cannon. He has pulled them all over the place. He's confused them. He's put money back into their money bags to make them uh, appear like they're going insane. And so they know that they, they can do nothing, but they try. In verse 15, so the men took this present and they took double the money with them and and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Which then leads them to see this second glimpse of God's goodness to them in verse 23. 
So after they've made an attempt to appease Joseph with gifts, his steward, Joseph's steward, which was kind of like his administrative assistant or his executive assistant, says these words to the brothers. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. So this is significant because more than likely, Joseph's steward is a pagan Egyptian. I mean, a pagan Egyptian meaning all of the Egyptians were pagans, but to the point that he had no real reason to point to the God of Israel here. Some commentators believe he was told by Joseph to do that, but, but we, don't, we don't know. We, want, we don't know what conversations took place um, between them. But he does. He could have pointed to any generic God of Egypt at that time, just kind of, you know, kind of how we generically say, you know, prayers and thoughts are going up to you, or, or, or we say something generic about God. He could have very easily do, done that, but he doesn't. He reminds them instead that the God of Jacob is your provider. The God of Joseph, the God of Israel is your provider. He is the one who put this treasure in your sacks. He is the one who has given to you. He is the one who has shown you mercy. And from this statement, the truth that God is their provider, because he is the one keeping his promise to preserve a people for himself by providing them with a Savior. Which leads to this third glimpse found in verse 29 that is true of all of us here today. These other two are true of us, all of us here today, but this is a, a bit more poignant, I think, for us. And we see it in Joseph's words to his brother Benjamin when he says, God be gracious to you, my son. And it's interesting to, to, that these words are spoken to Benjamin specifically when you consider what is said about him in Genesis 49, when Jacob finally gets around to blessing all of his sons, they have them all together there, just a little bit of a spoiler alert. Um, but he blesses Benjamin last, if you want to call it a blessing. And this is what he says about Benjamin. It's very short, it's one sentence, but he says this about Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, Jacob says about his son, one of his favorite sons. And yet God is gracious to him in this moment in chapter 43. Jacob definitely favors him as, a, as, a, as the brothers feast in verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Yet even though Benjamin was favored, all the brothers feasted at the prince's table. All the brothers partook of the food and the drink together with the prince of Egypt. All are shown mercy. All are provided for. All have been shown grace. 
And this is true of you as well. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. He pastored a church that long. And he said this about these verses. Why is God so good toward the lost? He declares that the purpose of the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering is to lead man to repentance. And he further declares that man does not know the object of God's goodness. Is this not a further picture of the state of man by nature? Can it not be seen that the dark ignorance of unbelief has brought a further fruit of ignorance of the grace of God? You are in good health. Why does God permit it? The answer is that he wants you to turn to him and acknowledge his goodness and accept the riches that he has for you. You have other blessings that come from the common grace of God. The purpose of such riches is to cause you to turn about face and come to him for further blessing. You see, everything that God does, his mercy, his provision, his grace, and every one of you are experiencing all three of those right now in real time. And even bringing about the circumstances that you are currently experiencing in your life, whether they be something to celebrate or something to mourn. God is using those things to awaken you to the reality that is all around you all the time. Because all of this is given to you in Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's Jesus, like Joseph, who, who grants you God's mercy because he took on the punishment that your sin deserves. He held back God's wrath towards you. It's Jesus who provides for you, like Joseph. Uh, Jesus is the one who goes ahead of you and blazes a trail to God through Satan, sin, and yes, even death. It's Jesus who shows you grace by giving his life for yours and still advocates before the Father on your behalf. But to get all of this, you have to be awakened to your own need. That you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. And I'll close with this quote from Pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who was also a pastor in Philadelphia at 10th Presbyterian Church. But he says this, I want you to awaken to God's goodness. I want you to see that all you are and all you have are a result of God's common grace to you all. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, it is only by your mercy and your provision and your grace that we are all sitting here this morning. And you have, you have chosen to show us all, all, all of your goodness um, this morning through, through your holy word.
And so, God, I pray that our hearts are awakened to this goodness towards us. That we would not try to take credit for what we uh, have done or what we have, but that we would see them all as good gifts from your hand for the specific purpose of awakening our hearts and our souls to the reality uh, that you, of what you have done for us in Christ. To provide mercy, to provide grace, to provide us salvation, to provide us with peace toward you. And so God, even now, even as we enter into the Lord's Supper together, awaken our hearts to this reality. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.